Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast from the United States Naval Academy Museum. I'm Claude Baraby, Director of the Naval Academy Museum. With us today, Sam Linnios, an old friend. Uh, it's good to have you back, Sam. It's good to be here, Claude. Thanks for inviting me. All right, Sam, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So I was the assistant archivist here at the Naval Academy for four years. Um, I'm also a historian. I recently took a job at Naval History and Heritage Command. I consider myself kind of an archivist and a historian, so kind of the best of both worlds. I agree. I mean, the and what I often say, and I'll probably say this at the panel tomorrow, is historians uncover very few things because why? Well, the, because the archivists exactly. The archivists find them first, and you're cataloging all these documents, so you really advise us, or I guess you advise yourself now as both archivist and historian. Yeah, so archivists do all the hard work. Historians just find it and they stitch it together and they, <laughs> they tell the story, right? But um, I think without the work of archivists, the historians would have a much tougher job doing that. Yeah, I mean, because you think about all the places around the country that we would have to go to mm -hmm. um, to try to find the information. If it weren't for archivists, we wouldn't have the, the lists and you wouldn't have sifted through the material at some point. Um, and you're working on your doctorate now. Right. Yeah. I'm doing, um, I'm doing a dissertation. I'll be done in May of next year. Um, Naval Academy history. When I was here, I kind of fell in love with it and, um, 19th century Naval Academy history. It's just a, it's a fascinating thing. This place was the only gateway to the officer corps for over a hundred and mm, well, no, about 80 years to like world war one. So, um, really is a good way to learn about the officer corps to study the Naval Academy. Now, look, in four years as assistant archivist here, you went through countless material here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I normally ask historians is, what's your aha moment in your research? What was the th one thing that you discovered? You have probably seen more material than a lot of historians only because of the nature of the archivist job. What are some of the high points that you've seen that you couldn't believe that you read or found? There were some things in there. Really, for me, it was the most interesting things were finding the midshipmen um, from the 19th century really stood out to me. Um, first off, because it's old, right? I can look at new stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But for me as a historian, I'm like, oh, this is old paper, right? It's old cursive handwriting. It's these old records. So I started digging into it, and I started finding these, these records, where it was um, orders published by the superintendents back right after the Civil War, where they would read these orders on public parade in front of the whole school. And these orders were in reaction to midshipmen getting in trouble for things. Not like horrible things, right? But your typical teenage boy, schoolboy behavior, like, I don't know, bad stuff, but like cheating or lying or um, getting in trouble for various things, drinking alcohol. And they would publicly shame these kids front of the entire school um and the words they were using they were talking these grand ideals of honor nobility chivalry um and just very overtly stark terms that you see that nowadays and it's all written down but back then these things were they weren't really published formally in like rule books or regulations they were just kind of like implied and assumed that these were ideals that governed men's behavior um, around each other, especially being officers. So, and that really stuck out to me. And that's where I started this whole dissertation journey was I started reading these, aha, look, look at this record. This is a, it's an amazing thing. It reflects the culture and time period. So, and that's what started me on it. Tell us the scope of your dissertation work. 
So I'm doing an unwritten honor concept at the Naval Academy between the founding of the school in 1845 and the end of Reconstruction in 1875. Well, because, and I want our listeners to know, and I, we did an episode on the honor concept actually very early on, like almost four years ago. Mm-hmm. One of my students interviewed uh, Vice Admiral Sagerholm, who unfortunately passed uh, recently. He was class of 1952, but it was presidents of the class of 50, 51, and 52 who were pulled together to create a new honor concept that still is enforced today. But tell, tell us about that period. Sure. So Ross Perot, right? He was there with your yeah. um, old regas. So that was when a lot of colleges at the time, Air Force Academy, I think was founded by 1952. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. West Point. Um, all the other schools were starting to write these things down. Before that, though, what I'm looking at is the time period where things were just so much different, right? The culture was different. The politics were different. The organizations were different. The only thing that was really the same was discipline. Implicit, um, think, th- thinkless, unquestionable discipline was really the thing that held the Navy together back in the day. Um, without thinking, just blind obedience to authority. So really this honor concept I'm examining is at the intersection of um, honor as a concept, right? Uh, who possesses honor? Is it is it men? Can African Americans possess honor? Can women possess honor? There's different regional varieties of it. There's that Southern slave owning society type of honor that's very fierce and quick to violence and aggression to defend the slightest insults or the slightest imputations against your character would be cause for pistols and, and blades to be. Do you, do you see that evident in the midshipmen of that period? Certainly. In 1848, there were two duels. One was fought behind Old Fort Severn, underneath where Bancroft Hall is, and one, the midshipmen went out to the Bladensburg dueling grounds. Oh, where uh, Franklin, uh, sorry, where uh, the, Stephen Decatur was killed by James Barron in a duel in 1820. That's right. So, and I think that part of my early chapters in the dissertation examines that kind of legacy of the, the, uh, the War of 1812 naval officer hero-worshipping cult, right, where they kind of had these guys were seen as, you know, the stars in the sky and... Hey, they were dueling each other. I think 33 duels took place between naval officers between like 1789 and like 1830s in the Jacksonian era. And they started, um, that started dying out a little bit. Now your dissertation period, uh, also covers a period where the first African-American midshipmen are accepted. One, uh, comes in for a while, James Conyers. Can you tell us about that uh, period and that experience? So right after the Civil War, David Dixon Porter took over the academy, started instituting this kind of honor concept. He was followed by James Lo- uh, John Lorimer Warden, who was superintendent from 1869 to 74. During that time period, um, the first African-American members of Congress were appointed during the Reconstruction Congress. Um, and uh, Robert B. Elliott, I think his name is, from South Carolina, he was the congressman who appointed James Conyers to the academy um, from Charleston. And he came in September of 1872. The academy at the time was led by Mr. Uh, Superintendent Warden, and a lot of his uh, officers on staff were all Civil War veterans. Republican stock had fought to defend the rights of uh, freedmen, essentially, you know, whether or not they acknowledged that or not is another story. But certainly the academy at the time was just not really ready for James to be here. He, by all accounts that I can find in the records, was a truly dedicated midshipman. He was here trying to do his best. He was trying against all odds. The moral courage that he exhibited while he was here um, 
is a, a story that I think can inspire anybody today, including midshipmen here. As, as a historian, how do you base that? Uh, what, what's the evidence that you found for his moral courage? So in 1873, he was locked in the boathouse and had, he was stoned. Midshipmen stoned him with, uh, with rocks. Um, he was sent to the Santee uh, for, for, for protection, which was an old frigate that was used as a, 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 a disciplined ship. One of the records I found here is in the museum. When he, was, when he was on the Santee within a week after being stoned by five or six boys, he has Stephen B. Luce's textbook called uh, Seamanship which is one of the fundamental um, seamanship textbooks that the Naval Academy uses issued to plebes. And it's in the museum on display. He has written in the front in the leaf of his book, it says, um, Don't give up the ship. Signed, Cadet Midshipman James Henry Conyers. And you think about that, right? It's, it's a famous saying by uh, after James Lawrence was killed and his friend Oliver Hazard Perry echoed it in the, the middle of the battle. But when I look at that, I'm like, oh, this is the context of what was going on. This boy here, this young man, was under immense social isolation. Nobody even said good morning to him in the 18 months that he was here. They would hold their nose around him. They would call him all types of bad names and insults. He was a pariah. And here he was on the ship after being stoned, writing, don't give up the ship. Was he treated differently by the northern versus the southern midshipmen? There's really hard to discern evidence about that. His James's daughter recorded an interview which is with the Amistad Research Center in which she said, yeah, my father told me that um, when he was older in like the 1930s that he was there and nobody even said good morning to him or good, nobody gave him the civility of the day in the 15 months that he was here. Now, when, there was a, that was a period of hazing, that there was a congressional investigation, I think at that same period on, on hazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the results of that at the academy? Did, did your research uncover that? Well, there was a lot of hazing, um, and there's transcripts of boards of inquiry and courts of investigation that were convened to investigate hazing, and they would formally bring everybody who suffered hazing before a board of officers, and they would ask them questions like, did this happen to you? And they would tell them what happened. Hazing at that time wasn't really like beating anybody physically, but it was like ridiculous stuff, like locking people in wardrobes, making them sit on top of a wardrobe and recite poetry or sing, or, um, you know, putting them under a mattress and stuffing them or, or pushing them around from person to person or typical things like that, like college schoolboy behavior. Um, the Congress certainly cracked down on it. They issued new regulations that stipulated dismissal for being people, being caught hazing. What were some of the positive outcomes that you found so far on this whole period of transition? And I should say, it's not just transition, but when you're looking at 1845, it's a, it's the establishment of the Naval Academy. So really, it's it, it's more of the establishment period, the first 30 years, rather than a transition, right? Yeah, I see an institution that grew into a, the Naval Academy. So back in the old days, 1845 to 50, it was the Wild West. You had... You had um, Franklin Buchanan, who was the first superintendent, he was a disciplinarian, very strict. His, his predecessors tried their best, but it was a wild west until, you know, you had men here who were 24 years old as acting midshipmen had been to sea for seven or eight years already, and they're here quartered all of a sudden in, in a school trying to, trying to be good schoolboys, and you can imagine that wasn't an easy undertaking, right? And then after 1850— Well, the, uh, wait, I want to go back to that for a second, because back then— 
midship, you could come in as a midshipman at what, 14, 15, 16 years old? Sure. Some of those guys like Andrew Hullfoot and, um, and a warden and some of the superintendents in the Civil War, they entered the Navy in like the 1820s at the age of 12 and 11. Yeah, and I think the youngest one may have been Charles Goldsboro. He got a commission. I think he was seven or eight years old, but his father was chief clerk of the Navy. Yeah. Got to make a living, right? Yeah. Start him young. Sam, you, you dealt with a lot of these records. What are you finding specifically? What kind of records are telling you the best stories for your work? So the best stories, so that's what I'm here to talk about, which is my, um, some of this research I found into African-Americans at the Academy. Um, this stuff, I think, when I look through these records, I'm seeing these things that are speaking out to me that I'm like, how has nobody seen these records before? How have people not looked at this? So um, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Naval Academy has had an African-American support community since the very beginning. Um, and in a lot of ways, there's still a big African-American community on the campus. But in the old days, it was all the, all the attendants, all the mess attendants, all the janitors, the barber, um, the messenger, the mailman, all these guys. They, they just appear everywhere in the records. You'll see them appear in estimates for, for like financial estimates. You'll see them appear in midshipman misconduct in reports that the superintendent authored. And you'll see them just appear. And what really stood out to me was the academy going above and beyond to defend them. It's like basic human dignity. And this is in a period where there's slaves everywhere, where there's just people are enslaved. And, and Maryland was a slave state, and it was surrounded by large, wealthy, slave-owning plantation owners. And yet here you have, in the 1840s and 1850s, you have a big African-American community where the record spoke out to me, and the story was that you know, the basic dignity of these people was being secured. That was one of the things that stood out to me. Who are some of the characters that emerge out of this story? I mean, because the, the faculty here uh, are, I mean, there's plenty of stories about them. Mm-hmm. There's plenty, there are certainly tons of stories about midshipmen. What about the staff? I mean, the staff is, is one third of this academy. It could not run. I mean, when you think about uh, bank, uh, excuse me, King Hall, which is uh, the, where midshipmen go to for lunch, breakfast, dinner, not in that order, obviously. Uh, when you think about the laundry services, when you think about the repairs that are done, the staff enable the midshipmen to learn and the faculty to teach. What were you learning from their experiences back in the 1800s? So it's funny you mentioned King Hall. So as an example, this research really takes the form of personalities. On one hand, you had well-known personalities I'm talking about African-American staff that was here. And then on the other side, you had these nameless people that were either enslaved or free that worked here. A lot of them are in the mess hall. So King Hall, speaking of that, the very first steward of the academy. This is back in the old days in the age of sail. Every ship had a steward, right? And like a cook. Mm -hmm. Um, So they naturally took that organization to shore establishments. And the first steward here was a steward that Franklin Buchanan knew when he was attached to um, the Gulf Squadron right before he took command of the Academy in like 1844 when he was um, in the sensitive issues of Mexico at the time. His name was Darius King. And he was... was King, King Darius? He was called, dubbed King Darius okay. um, in some of the records. Right. Um, he was a free African-American man whose family resided in Philadelphia. He had two or three daughters and a wife. And Buchanan wanted to bring him on board to be the steward. And unfortunately, the laws of Maryland at the time were very strict, and they prohibited um, African-Americans from coming into the state. 
Um, you could bring slaves, but free African-Americans were not allowed to Well, come because Maryland, Maryland was a, a slaveholding state until the Civil War. Correct. Yeah. So Buchanan wrote the Attorney General and the Secretary of the Navy and said, I want this man to be here. He's a good steward. He's, I know him very well. He's a shipmate of mine. And the Attorney General was like, I don't know if you should really touch this. It's kind of a sensitive sectional issue in 1845. So Buchanan, being kind of impetuous and in that kind of naval officer character, said, damn it, I'm going to bring this man. So he just shipped him. He shipped him for like the $1 salary, the whatever, you know, as like a, the lowest ranking uh, mm-hmm. uh, sailor on federal property. doesn't matter if it's Maryland. Uh, state property. So he shipped them and he brought them on board and he served the midshipmen. So it's really interesting. In 1848, after being the steward for three years, Darius King's family was in Philadelphia. The Naval Academy superintendents helped Darius petition the Maryland state government to allow a special act, a dispensation. And I found this in the, um, the Maryland state legislature records. It says in 1848, um, Darius King, the steward at the Naval Academy, is uh, a free black man of great respectability and sobriety and rectitude of conduct, and he's, he's, he's never had an issue. The, the Maryland State Legislature passed a special act allowing Darius's wife and two and t- three daughters permission to enter the state of Maryland and reside with him on the Naval Academy grounds, or shortly in Annapolis in the vicinity. And I looked it up and I said, look, between like 1806 and like 1845, only like two or three dozen petitions like that were ever granted. But the Naval Academy superintendents and the staff here clearly helped him. This isn't something that this man could probably do on his own. He had to have some kind mm-hmm. of political patronage. And that happened. And so that's an example of these things that were just strange things that were sti- sticking out well, to me. There's, right? uh, I, I don't Girl, I think this was during that same period. Uh, Benjamin, oh shoot, uh, Benjamin Bordley. Bordley. I kept thinking broadly. Bro, it's Bordley. So Benjamin this, Bordley is a really is, interesting story. This is a story that's like wow. This is something that blew me away, and I recently found records that really confirmed a lot of what I was thinking. So, the very first chemistry professor at the academy was named John Lockwood. He was a surgeon that did chemistry. Right around this time, eighteen forty-five to forty-nine. Right. The first steamships in the Navy obviously were a lot earlier, but, you know, they had steamships in the Navy at that time. Correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, they did. It's like today, like, OK, a lot of kids here know that the cyber department's a thing, but are they really programmers? Right. Are they really guys that can write code and do mm-hmm. stuff? So that's kind of the way the steam engine was back then. Right. People didn't know how the heck steam worked. They didn't know how to construct a steam engine. They just knew, OK, you pull this lever and steam comes out and the ship, ship moves. So it was really complex, and they started to try to bring in uh, steam instruction in like the 18, late 1840s, early 1850s. John Lockwood's successor was a man named William Francis Hopkins. He was an 1817 or 1818 West Point graduate. He was a science professor, chemistry professor. They brought him on board. He's a very smart man, and he had a big family, and he lived on the academy grounds. For three years, between 1850 and 1853, um, Hopkins was trying to find somebody to assist him. But he's, and he writes these letters over and over again to the Naval Academy superintendent and the secretary of the Navy. He said, I need an assistant to help me with these chemistry experiments that I'm doing, to help me instruct in the steam engine, to help me instruct in the, the mechanics and, the, and steam propulsion. And he's like, I can't find anybody to do this. Or the Navy department wouldn't approve paying the salary of like 
$600 a year to an assistant professor, which today is like probably, I don't know, 50 or 60 grand. Um, and then all of a sudden, in 1853, you see this letter that Hopkins writes where he says, there is in this town an enslaved African-American boy of age 14 or 15. And he's like, and I've seen this boy create a full working model of a steam engine out of a piece of scrap metal and a gun barrel. And he's like, I, he's like, I've never seen something like this before, basically, is the essence of what he's saying. He's like, and I know that this, this, this kid created this by looking through the window of my workshop. He's like, I, he's like, this type of man, we can secure his services by paying the wage of an attendant which was like 25 or 30 cents a day. Yeah. He's like, we can save the government money if we bring this man on board. He can help me with my chemistry experiments. And so we did. So we brought him on board in 1853. Hopkins' uh, family taught Bordley how to read and write. And um, eventually, Bordley sold, um, he, he, he sold models of steam engines. And with the help of several faculty on staff, he... He purchased his freedom from the Hammond family in Annapolis in um, 1857 or 58. He becomes a free man. He stays on with the academy, kind of with the unofficial title of assistant professor of chemistry. At least that's what all the other mm -hmm. African-American community kind of looked up to him as this repository of science and industry. What happens to him? He stays on at the academy. Um, when the South secedes from the Union, Maryland is a border state ultimately, but... During 1861, they thought that it was going to become a part of the Confederacy. So the Academy, um, with the Constitution, the ship here, they, they, they got all the midshipmen on board and went up to New York and then to uh, Rhode Island. Bordley goes with them. There's evidence that he comes back here with the science professor, um, a man named Augustus Smith, um, and they helps him pack up all the, um, all the instruments, the glass vials and the the chemistry apparatus and stuff, and he boxes it up, and there's evidence of that. And then he kind of disappears, but we know that he stays on at the academy, um, I think until at least the end of the Civil War. He ends up in uh, Mashpee, Massachusetts, where he, um, according to census records and other business records, he opens up a philosophical instrument shop where he sells um, science equipment and steam equipment. He creates more steam engines. He built the steam engine for a boat, in, Ma in Mashpee, Massachusetts, there's a lake, um, and he he operated the steamboat on the lake for like tourists. That's amazing. It's an amazing story. What's the one? I mean, you're still in your investigation phase, really, of of your dissertation. What's the one mystery you still want to solve? The you haven't found the information yet, and you hope to. Hmm. There's a lot of them. I mean. Ultimately, I would like to know more about the concluding chapters of um, James Conyers' time, his successor as the second African-American midshipman, Alonzo McLennan, and his successor, Henry Edwin Baker. Those guys, I think, is a story that really needs to be told, and thoroughly. There was a book um, that was written where their experience was told in a chapter called Breaking the Color Barrier. Mm -hmm. But that book was more focused on the experience of uh, Wesley Brown, the first um, black graduate of the academy in 1947 or 48. I think that we need to have, I, I'm trying to nail down all the records to really tell that story because it's tragic in a lot of ways, 
But like I said, it, it's, it's a story that is really, I think, relevant to our culture and our time that we're in right now. I think that a lot of people would appreciate it. And I think that it would impart kind of an inspiring story of moral courage that I think just needs to be told. I know similar things happened at West Point with uh, Ossian Flipper, who was the first black graduate, actually, of the Academy uh, at West Point in 1877, I think, or 1876. Um, But really, I'm trying to tell the story from as many angles as possible, trying to get all the the kind of day-to-day experiences that they went through, the kind of... um, the kind of way that they were treated, the names they were called, the, the way that they were socially isolated and shunned and, and um, just completely just made pariahs. It's a very interesting story. And also, complementing that story, kind of bring in the perspectives of all those African-American staff that were here at the time in the mess hall, right? The very last misconduct episode that got Henry Baker kicked out took place in the mess hall when there was a white cadet midshipman next to him and there was an empty seat. And Baker tried to remove the chair because that was the, the normal thing to do. If there was, there was nobody in the chair, he would take the chair away. But the kid said, no, you're not going to take that chair. I want that chair to be between us. So there was a scuffle at the mess table. And these black mess attendants are in the background watching this happen. I'm thinking, what's going through these guys' minds watching all this stuff happen? And I found records that have shown some of the experiences that these mess attendants endured. Some of this stuff is absolutely horrendous material like there's i can share one with you in 1875 there was a mess attendant named charles bias this man was involved in an incident with a midshipman found it through a court of inquiry proceedings transcript where this officer of the day sees this midshipman getting ready to strike this mess attendant who's kind of sitting there with a deprecating attitude kind of smiling and looks like they're joking but kind of at the same time so he runs up and he kicks this mess attendant, kicks him in the leg. So he calls the midshipman into his office the next day and he says, what are you doing? Where are you kicking this man? He's like, oh, we, I just kicked him. He, I asked him for some food and he didn't have anything, so I kicked him. We all do it. We all kick him every single day for fun. So they convene an investigation. There's like three or four midshipmen. This one was from South Carolina. Another one was from Georgia. Another one was from a, a northern state. Basically, all their transcripts say, oh, yeah, this servant is a favorite servant of ours. We kick him every day. He says, if half of the cadet midshipmen on my class were to pass this servant in the stairway three times a day, more than half of the class would strike him. They would throw brooms at him. They would throw shoes at him. They, 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 would, they would kick him and, and use him for fun. And we do that because he always has some funny reply to make. He has some witty response this servant is a character. Everybody has fun with him. The servant himself appears right next to the guy who kicked him. And the guy who kicked him says, isn't it true that every day the midshipmen kick you and they fling brooms at you and throw shoes at you? He's like, oh, yes, sir. Every day. He's like, do you think I was angry at the time that I kicked you? He's like, no, sir, you were smiling. You look like you were having fun. He's like, I, th- I thought you were kicking me in fun. Huh. And I, well. So it's stuff like that that's happening at the same time that these African-American midshipmen are at the school. Right. And it's stories like that that I find, and I think there's more of them out there. Not to say that everybody was bad. You know, obviously it was a mm-hmm. different time period. But those stories like that that show the social context of the staff, I think those are vital perspectives. And I think, I think naval history can, can be 
invigorated by that kind of stuff. I think that people like to read that kind of stuff. They like to see the normal everyday interactions. You know, okay, enough has been said about officers and and you know the aristocracy, and, and we're getting into that social history. It's been around for several decades, but you know, I, I think people would can appreciate stories like that because it shows the truth and the reality of what life was like in the culture that was you know this was what was acceptable behavior right sam thanks for uh, coming by i appreciate it sure this is preble hall